you know, for all the people that put so much work and effort into making that happen, thank you again. It was such a great time, and I hope that you were able to be a part of it. Uh, it was an absolute blast. I'm glad that you're here uh, today. Those of you here in the room and those of you joining us online, so glad that you're with us as we start a brand new series for the fall that will take us uh, right up to about Thanksgiving. You know, I was reading an article that was, uh, it came out about a month and a half ago in July, mid-July. And the article was based on research done by the Gallup polling group. Now, if you know anything about uh, Gallup, they don't give opinions. They give empirical data, a lot of statistics, a lot of surveys. And this article was based on that. I'll, I'll spare you the statistics. For some of you, you love that. There was many of them. But the article kind of substantiated what most of us, I think, sense or feel or kind of internally know, but this gave, you know, like backing for, for the truth. And that is that in America, there's a, an increasingly or decreasingly uh, diminishing amount of confidence, trust in institutions, organizations, and their leaders. And they just talked about the statistics across the board of how people in America don't trust, for instance, the government like they used to. We don't have confidence in politicians or the president or Congress or, or the Supreme Court. Likewise, we don't have confidence or trust the media, especially when it comes to news. Doesn't matter if it's television or print or you know newspapers or the radio. We don't trust that we're getting the story. We feel like we're getting you know partisan political opinions as opposed to actual news. There was a feeling across the board that people don't trust as much or have confidence in our military, in the law enforcement, in the criminal justice system. And then all the different initials that you could ever think of, they just talked about that. I mean, whether it was the DOJ, the FBI, the CDC, the DNC, the, the GOP, and I'm BOB. All of those except for that one. That one I threw in just to see if you're listening. All of these areas, but we just across the board, and even these mainstays, the kind of like, no, not these, in financial institutions, in educational institutions, in um, medical institutions, and yes, in spiritual and religion institutions, organizations, the church, that there is just an, a historic low on our confidence and our trust. And if there was a no confidence vote, all of these organizations would not fare well. Now, you know as well as I do that organizations don't just exist in a vacuum. Organizations are organizations because of the people that are part of them and the people that lead them. And therein lies the problem. That sometimes we would think, well, yeah, it's not necessarily the organization, it's the leaders. We need leaders that are competent, not like what we've got in there. We need leaders who have, have a conviction and they've got the courage to stand on that conviction and they've got the character to back it up. We need leaders that are visionary. We need leaders that have virtue and, and values and, and, and valor. We need leaders that have integrity and, and ethics and morals. We, we need those kind of leaders. That's why we need to get rid of these people and vote these people out and vote these people in and fire this one and all these things. And I say, that all may be true, but just hold on there a second, Captain Cancellation. While that may be true, maybe it's time for us to look in the mirror and instead of pointing out what's wrong with all of them, whoever them is, to say, well, what about me? Am I a person of character, valor, values? Am I a person of morals and ethics? And if you say yes, 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 all the way down, then ask, am I a person of humility? Because <laughs> maybe not so much. 
And today we're going to start a brand new series. And we're going to look and examine the life and lessons from the life of an individual who I believe is maybe the most overshadowed, overlooked, underrated, often ignored, and yet most extraordinary characters in all of Scripture. And what we'll find as we examine his life is this is the leader. This is the person that we could emulate because this man is a man of incredible conviction and courage and character. He is a visionary, and yet he's got valor, and he's got these values and ethics and morals. On top of that, he is faithful. He is loyal. He is obedient. He is a unifier of those things and people that are divided. He is unwavering. He is, he is, he is unchanging, and he is uncompromising, and he is humble. And my prayer is this, is that we examine his life and as we look at lessons from his life, and we'll look at a few, that we will not only grow in our biblical knowledge, that will happen, yes, but that's not my primary goal. My prayer is that we wouldn't just get an example so that we can point fingers at how other leaders ought to be, should be, need to be, could be, but that we would take lessons from his life and we would apply them to our lives so that we become more the kind of people of integrity and character and virtue that our families need us to be, that this church needs us to be, that our teams and our schools and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our government and our world needs us to be, especially those of us who are followers after Jesus. And that's my prayer for me and for all of us, is that by looking at this individual's life, we will be transformed and we will be changed more into the people that God desires for us to be. The person I'm talking about is Joshua. Now, many of you have heard of Joshua. You've sung about Joshua. You know some of the stories of Joshua. But as I said, I believe that Joshua, and we'll look at this more next week, I believe that Joshua is overshadowed and, and sometimes downplayed. Um, Philip Keller said this about Joshua, and these are pretty strong statements. He said this, talking about Joshua, he has seldom been given the full credit he deserves as perhaps the greatest man of faith ever to set foot on the stage of human history. <laughs> That's a strong statement. In fact, he goes on, his entire brilliant career was a straightforward story of simply setting down one foot after another in quiet compliance with the commands of God. And when I read that, I thought that that's what I want. That's what I want someone to be able to say about my life, our lives, our church. That at the end of it all, that, that we can be summarized, that we simply set down one foot after another in quiet compliance with the commands of God. That would be success. That would be being who God created us to be. To walk that way, to live that way, to have that life. Now, as we study Joshua, I want to just point out, we are not studying, we are not doing a book study on the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible. We're not doing a book study. Most of what we looked at will come out of that book, but it's not a book study on Joshua. There will be massive sections, massive chapters we will completely ignore, we won't even acknowledge, we won't even give a nod to, we'll skip right over them because we're not studying the book, we're studying the individual. And as is often the case in these kind of series, whether it's a book or a character, very often the first week of the series, I give a little background, kind of set the stage for the rest of the series. And so today is that day. Some of you love these first week of the series because there's a lot of background, a lot of backstory, a lot of facts, a lot of historical settings. Some of you say, get on with the series. Well, we will. 
But today we're going to look at some of the backstory of this man, Joshua, long before he ever is the leader of Israel. Long before he crosses the Jordan River, long before he fits the battle of Jericho, long before he makes those incredible words, that incredible statement, as for me and my house, we will serve. Long before all of that, we're going to look at the backstory. So Joshua was born, and it's, it's not agreed upon, but roughly around 1470 BC or so, give or take, roughly 500 years before King David's time. So he's born, and he's born most likely in the, uh, in the land of Goshen, which is the, in the Nile Delta in the northern part of, of Egypt there at, on the Nile River. He was born as a slave, and he's a part of the tribe, if you're familiar with Israel, part of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel, not one of the sons of Israel. That's, I won't go into too much, yes, I will, a little bit too much detail. We always think, okay, there's the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, that's the same deal, right? Well, yes, kind of. There were 12 sons and there were 12 tribes, but they're not all the same because Levi was a tribe, but it didn't get land. And Joseph was a son, but he wasn't a tribe. But then there was Ephraim and Manasseh, who were not just Jacob's sons, but they were Joseph's sons, and he crossed his arms when he blessed them. So Ephraim was one of those. Did you follow any of that? Ephraim was the son of Joseph. Okay, so... so Joshua comes from that line. We read this in 1 Chronicles chapter 7. It says, the descendants of Ephraim. Now, it goes through a whole bunch, and I'll spare you. We won't go through all the names. We will pick up with um, Joshua's grandfather. His name, uh, Elishama. It's probably Elishama, but I like saying Elishama because it's just funner, funner. It's more fun to say Elishama. So Elishama. So Elishama has a son, and his son, Elishama and his wife, named their son Nun. So Nun is the son of Elishama. Elishama and his mama have this son. His name is Nun. Nun has a son. Mr. and Mrs. Nun have a son, and his name is Joshua. You following that one? Okay. So what you will see often when it's talking about Joshua, they will reference him as Joshua, the son of Nun, which if you just take that phonetically, sounds like he has no parents. Joshua, the orphan, you know, Joshua, the son of none. God bless you. You know, no, it's spelled N-U-N, which is a little bit odd. Well, if his mother was a nun, this is an awkward issue. Because if a nun has a son, her career is done. Okay, Joshua is the son of none. And he was a slave. He was born a slave. His parents were slaves. His entire family, for 400 years, they had been in slavery. What's interesting about Joshua and his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Nunn, is that his parents did not name him Joshua. That was not his birth name. In fact, we read this in Numbers chapter 13, verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim. Here it is again. Hoshea, son of Nun. Now, some of you say, well, maybe they had two sons, Joshua and Hoshea. Well, that would be a good theory, except that's just not true. I mean, they may have had, but this is the same one. So what's the deal with this? How is it that he got this name Hosea? And why did they name him Hosea? And why is he later referred to as Joshua? Well, I think there's great detail. If you're familiar with scripture, a lot of times there's a lot of significance in the names. So Mr. and Mrs. Nunn find out that they're pregnant. They're going to have this baby. And they find out it's a boy when he's born. And they name him Hosea. I think when naming him a Hosea, it was an expression of this deep longing, this, this prayer, this dream, this hope, this desire they had. Because Hosea means literally salvation. 
So now, whether they believe that their son is going to be the source of salvation or not, they know that every time they refer to him, it will be expressing their heart's desire because they've been slaves their whole life. They've been kept in captivity and bondage under the the rule and the thumb of Egypt. They've been forced to have hard labor and they long for someone to deliver them. They long for someone to bring salvation. And so they name their son Hosea. All right, so then how is it that his name goes from Hosea to what we know as Joshua. What happens there? Again, in scripture, there are times when names get changed. You may remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, Simon, Jesus refers to him as Peter. And there, there are these kind of t- times when this happens. And so these names are changed. Here's another one of those instances. Now, this isn't just a biblical thing. People change their names all the time. Speaking of football season, which we're not, but since it's upon us, I don't know if you remember, there was a receiver, I believe he was with the Cincinnati Bengals, um, Chad Johnson. He was a receiver. His number was 85, and he wanted, and actually did, wanted his last name legally changed to Ocho Cinco. Because his number was 85, he wanted his last name to be Ocho Cinco, which is not how you say 85 in Spanish, by the way. It's how you say 85. Anyway, regardless, he had his name changed to Ocho Cinco, so he's not only got the number 85, but he's got the words on the back of his shirt. So he changes his name. The one that's that's always baffled me um, was Prince. God rest his soul. Prince changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol, which makes for difficulties. So what should we call you? It's a symbol that can't be pronounced. So how should we refer to you? And to, to deal with this dilemma, he says, okay, you can refer to me as the artist formerly known as Prince. Okay. So you were Prince, but you're not Prince, but you want us to call us the artist formerly known as Prince. Seems like it would be a whole lot easier to just stick with Prince. But regardless, names changed. Most recently, Kanye changed his name. To yay. It's easier for him to spell, I think. That's the reason. I, I don't know. But, but the, one that, the one that tops them all is Sean Combs, right? Sean Combs becomes Sean Puffy Combs, becomes Puff Daddy, becomes P. Diddy, becomes Diddy, becomes Brother Love, becomes Swag for a week, becomes all these things. Like, he changes names like we change socks. Now, when Hosea is changed to Joshua. It's not a stage name. It's not a reinventing himself. It's not in any way a publicity stunt. In fact, he has nothing to do with it. This is how it plays out. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 16, at the end of this section, it says, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. Moses names him Joshua. And this is more than just a a guy who says, you know, I like this kid. I'm going to give him a nickname. I'm going to call him Josh instead. It's more than that. Again, names are very significant. And this was a significant name change. When Moses changes his name to Joshua, it's to send a message. It's to make sure very clear that there's an understanding because Joshua, Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. You you know, the, uh, uh, um, the first name was just salvation, but Joshua's Yahweh is salvation. In the Hebrew, it's actually pronounced, uh, pronounced Yahashua, or another alternate, alternate, another way to say it is Yeshua. 
And it's this, every time his name is spoken, it sends a message, it preaches a sermon. Yahweh is salvation. It's a reminder, it's a declaration, it's a promise, it's a prophecy, it's a proclamation that Yahweh will be their salvation. Yes, Moses will deliver them out of Egypt, but it was Yahweh who was their salvation. Joshua will take them into the promised land, but it's Yahweh who is their salvation. And he doesn't want him to ever forget this, that Yahweh is their salvation. You wanna hear something really kind of cool? So the, the Hebrew is this Yahashua or Yeshua. When you translate that into Greek, the name is Jesus. Okay, this is so cool. Because Jesus is the Greek form of Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, and Jesus, the very name, and Joshua, what he did. What Joshua does is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would fulfill 1,500 years later. I mean, think about this. And I'm sorry to go all Christmas on you here, but just for a minute, we'll get into December. When Mary is pregnant with Jesus, Joseph, you know, is going to divorce her quietly. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And in that dream, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What does Jesus mean? What does Joshua mean? Yahweh is salvation. You're going to give him the name Jesus because it's a fulfillment of the name of Joshua. This is it. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. And follow this one. What Joshua was doing was taking the people in the promised land. Moses couldn't do that. What Moses couldn't do, Joshua did. Now, the law of Moses, what the law of Moses can't do is give us a right relation with God. Only Jesus can do that. Do you see the foreshadowing of the whole thing? I mean, it is so cool. In John chapter one, it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes from Jesus. Woo, yeah, baby. I'm loving that, but that has nothing to do with my sermon, so I got to get back on track. Let's talk about Joshua again. So Joshua, this, this son of Nun, his name is changed. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, he gets connected with Moses. Now, if you watched the movie or you read the book, uh, you know that Moses has been out in the wilderness for 40 years, jo Charlton Heston, that whole thing. And he comes back in. Moses is from the tribe of Levi. Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. How they got connected, I'm not entirely sure, but when Moses comes to deliver them, somehow there's this connection. And what we find here is that, that there's this connection and Joshua is a bit younger. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses's aide since youth. Some of your translations might say Moses's assistant, his attendant, his servant since youth. How old was Joshua? We don't know. What we do know is at this time, Moses is 80, so pretty much anyone is considered youth to him. But Joshua is probably in his 20s at the time. And there's a connection that happens, and Moses sees something in this young man. Moses knows there's something about him. And he says, I need you to be with me. I want you to, to help me. I want you to be like my attendant, my, my assistant, my, my valet. I, I want you to walk with me. I want you to help me out here. And Moses knows that he's going to be pouring into this, this young man. When you begin to think about that, now some of this is a little bit speculative on my part, not biblical, but biblical. I will point these things out when the Bible has a verse for you. And when it's not, it's just my mind thinking. If Joshua was Moses's attendant, he probably kind of stuck by his side fairly closely. What that means is while they're still in Egypt, 
they're connecting. It's possible that when Moses went in to speak to Pharaoh, it's, this is speculation purely. It's possible that when he went in to speak to Pharaoh, Joshua may have been right by his side. Not in a position of authority, but there to serve and assist Moses. What we would know for sure is that Joshua would have seen and experienced all 10 plagues. And the 10th plague, when the death angel comes in to take the oldest son, Joshua's life would have been in peril, except for the fact that Mr. and Mrs. Nunn put their trust in the blood of the lamb for his salvation. Thus his name, Yahweh, is salvation. His life was spared because of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost on the Passover. And when Moses is there before the Red Sea and he lifts up the staff of God and the seas are parted and they walk across in dry ground, it's very possible that Joshua was right here by his side. When Moses brings water out of the rock, all of these things that Joshua was his aide, was Moses' aide, his young aide from his youth. And I've got to believe that his life experiences were preparations. They were preparing him. He was experiencing these things, and all these things weren't coincidental. They weren't accidents. They were preparing him for what God was, had in mind for him in the future, which is a good place for us to pause and just remember this fact, that whatever circumstance you're going through, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever season you're in right now, and some of them are not pleasant, some of them are difficult, and some of them you're enduring, and some of them you're asking God why, it could be that the very reason you are going through what you're going through today is that God is preparing you for something greater in the future. We want him to just take it away, clear this out, let's get on with life, and God says, you don't understand. I am sovereign, I am in control, I see what's going on, I hear your prayers, I know the endurance, but I've got something greater in mind for you, and until you get through this, you will not be able to experience what I have for you. And Joshua's life experiences we're preparing him for what God would have for him. So, so what I want to do in the remainder of our time is I want to look at some of his life experiences, three or four of his life experiences. Some of them you're familiar with, some you may not be, but life experiences that God used to prepare him. And again, all of these are long before he ever becomes a leader or ever goes into Jericho or any of that. It happens. So let's look at a few of these. In Exodus chapter 17, this is two months after um, they've come out of slavery in Egypt. Now they're out in, the, out in the wilderness there. Two months later, they encounter a group called the Amalekites. The Amalekites are trying to take them on. And there's a, a very famous um, scene that I've preached on multiple times in Exodus chapter 17, where Moses stands on the top of the mountain and he has the staff of God. And as long as he holds it up, the Israelites win in this battle. I mean, he can watch this unfold. As long as he holds it up, the Israelites advance on the Amalekites. But when his arms get tired, he lets it down, and the Amalekites begin to advance on the Israelites. And it, it's just like clockwork. I mean, he holds his, the staff of God up. They begin to advance. He puts his arms down. The Amalekites begin to take over. They're like, go on. Go down. All, all this stuff. Okay. So, yeah. So these two guys, Aaron, his brother, and a guy named Hur, they come and say, Moses, you're old. Sit on this rock, hold your arms up, and we're going to hold your arms up too. We're going to be on each side. Each of us will hold one of your arms up so that you can keep the staff of God up in the air and you can win. Now, that's, I've preached on that story multiple times. The day before that happened, the day before all that happened, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, we read, Moses said, to Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. 
said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So while Moses is up there doing the hokey pokey thing, Joshua is in the heat of battle. He's on the front lines and he's experiencing this. He's probably watching all this. Then Moses, keep your arms up, buddy. Got to help us out on this thing. He experiences this. And eventually that day, the Israelites win. When they win, Yahweh gives this word to Moses. Verse 14, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and... And, and, make sure Joshua hears it. Make sure Joshua, why? Because I think the last thing God wants is for Joshua to think that his military prowess is what won them the victory. The last thing he wants Joshua to have is a big ego, to be pride and filled with himself and think he can do it. No, he needs to be reminded, Yahweh is salvation. Joshua, we want you to know this so that you remember, and it will prepare you because this is not the last battle you will fight. And if you think you can do it on your own strength, you are wrong. Yahweh is salvation. Now, seven chapters later in, in Exodus chapter 24, there's another scene that happens, and they're at, now they're a few months later, and they're at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, you know, the Lord comes down, and there's thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and clouds and all this stuff. Well, Moses takes his brother Aaron and his two sons, um, Abihu and, and, and Nadab, and, and then 70 elders. And God says, well, come and worship me. But don't let everybody else come up on the mountain. Just come towards the mountain and come worship me. So Moses and Aaron, who is the high priest, and his sons who are priests, and these 70 elders, they go and they worship. You can read this on your own. It's, it's almost like out of the book of Revelation, like the wedding feast of the Lamb, because they're in the presence of God, and there's this... The, 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 the pavement is like glass and they're eating and they're drinking. It's this big festival and they're, and they're worshiping God. And in the midst of all this, God says, okay, Moses, I want you to come up on the mountain. No one else comes up on the mountain, which they get that. Like, okay, not a problem. And so we find this in Exodus 24, verse 12 says, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone, you know, the, 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 those tablets, with the law and commands I've written for the instruction. Then Moses set out. Not the 70 elders, not Aaron and his sons. They go back to camp. But Moses set out. Okay, we get that. But look what it says after that. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide. And Moses went up on the mountain of God. Strikes me. Moses is going up to meet with God. Aaron and all the elders are going back to camp. But Joshua goes with Moses. How far? I don't know. Not up on the mountain, not in the, into the very presence of God, but goes with them. And Moses is up there for 40 days. What does Joshua do for 40 days? He's not in the camp. He's not on the mountain. And maybe during those 40 days... He, like Moses, is praying and fasting. And maybe he's worshiping God. Maybe he's recognizing that Yahweh is salvation, the power of God. And maybe he is being transformed. He is being shaped. He is being molded. His, his depth and his maturity and his character is growing deeper and deeper in these times. Because during the 40 days, God says to Moses, you know, there's a bad thing going on in the camp, the golden calf deal. And uh, God says, I'm done with him. And Moses says, let's give him another chance. 
And they come back down. And Moses already knows what's happening. And as they get closer to the camp in chapter 32 of Exodus, verse 17, it says, when Joshua, so he's with Moses now again. When Joshua hears the, the noise of the people shouting, he says to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. So he's been with Moses since 40 days. He doesn't know what's going on there. It sounds like there's a war. And Moses says to him in essence, oh, no, no, no. It's not a war. It's far worse than a war. It's the people who said they would follow God, the people of the covenant, the people who've been chosen and delivered have rebelled and are sinning. And Joshua gets a front row seat to see how easily and how quickly these people of God would stray and turn their back from him. He gets a front row to see, to see how not to lead because he sees the anger of Moses in his fleshly anger and what he does in disobedience to God. And he sees with a front row seat of the justice of God and the judgment of God, not upon pagan nations, but upon his chosen people when they rebel because it'll happen again and again and again. And all of this life experience is preparing him for the future. Now, a few months later, um, Moses goes outside the camp and he sets up a tent. It's not the tabernacle. This is outside the camp. It's a tent called the tent of meeting. And when someone wants to inquire of the Lord, it, it appears that anyone can take advantage of this. The scripture kind of implies that. But they would go out to the tent of meeting and there they would inquire of the Lord. That it was, it was a holy, sacred place where they would connect with God. When Moses went to the tent of meeting, it was different. When Moses would go, the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud and the glory of God would descend on the tent and all the Israelites would stand by their tent and they would just wait and they would watch. And Moses would commune with the Lord. This is what it says in Exodus 33, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. That makes sense. Moses goes out, talks with God, goes back to the camp. Look what it says after that. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. What's he doing? I don't know. I mean, he's a servant of Moses. Maybe he's cleaning up after him. Maybe he's kind of like the guard as people come out, just make sure nothing gets lost. Maybe he's kind of a bouncer out there. Or maybe he spends day after day inquiring of the Lord, worshiping the Lord, praying, learning more being connected, but his life experiences prepare him for the future. Uh, two years have passed since they leave Egypt and they're getting ready to go into the promised land just as God had said. They're gonna head in there. It's gonna be theirs. They're at a little town called Kadesh Barnea, this little area. And Moses says, before we go into the land, we're gonna send 12 people in, you know, 12 guys, you know, from the 12 tribes, that whole thing. We're going to send them in, just kind of do a recon mission just to see what we've got. And so these 12 guys go in and they, they spy the land. And they come back with this kind of this mixed report. On the one hand, it's way better than anything you could ever imagine. I mean, they're using terms like, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds like some kind of a facial lotion to me. I, and we don't, but, but it was like this abundance. They got this grape, the cluster of grapes they can't even carry by themselves. Oh, and then there is one other thing. Any of you remember Andre the Giant? Maybe from uh, Princess Bride or better yet from Big Time Wrestling. 
there's a few Andre the Giants in there as well. I mean, like a bunch of them. There's some big, there's some big boys in there. And they said, and we saw these people, and we looked like grasshoppers. You know, like, whoa, dude. So they, they come back from this recon mission, and 10 of them say, we can't do this. There's no way. We're not going to go. Yes, it's an amazing land, but, but these people are big. They're going to destroy us. They're going to swallow us up. And they get the crowd all riled up, riled up against Moses and Aaron. And there were two of these spies that said, hey, let's go. Do you know the names of those guys? Joshua and Caleb. Do you know the names of the other 10? Mm -mm. No one names their sons after those guys. <laughs> but Joshua and Caleb, there's something different there. And when they see these people that are getting them all riled up and telling them they shouldn't go and they don't have any faith and they're getting mad at Aaron and Moses and, and, Moses and all that, Joshua and Caleb, it says, they tear their robes. They're like, no, no, guys, no, no. And look at what it is that Joshua says in Numbers chapter 14. If the Lord is pleased with us, <laughs> which was a big if with Israel. I mean, the Lord wanted to be pleased with them. All they had to do was keep in step. But if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. And look at it. Look at his heart. Only do not rebel against the Lord. I mean, you saw what happened. Yeah, you, you've seen this. Don't do this again. And do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see his faith. I wonder as he's just pleading with them, like, come on. Yes, they're big, but do you know what's waiting for us? And the Lord is with us. I wonder if in the middle of it, he just says, do you know what my name is? It's Joshua. You know what that means, right? Yahweh is salvation. If you read on, people want nothing to do with it. In fact, they plan to kill Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. They're going to stone them. And there's an intervention. God intervenes. But there's a judgment because of their lack of faith and because of their rebellion. And God says, you will get the promised land, but anyone who's over 20, you're not going to see it. Because you wouldn't trust God, because you rebelled, because of your sin. And Joshua's saying, God is with us. Yes, there, there's Andre the Giants in there. But what Joshua knew is that his God was bigger than his giants. And he held on to that. Everyone else saw the obstacles, the barriers, the giants. Joshua saw God. Saw the barriers, yes, but he saw them through the lens of his God. And so now, they will get the promised land but anyone 20 or older will not enter it. Verse uh, 30 of Numbers 14, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except for Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now let me just say this, because this applies to some of us. Joshua is going to now suffer consequences that are on his life because of the sin and the rebellion of someone else's choice, not because of what he's done. And I just want to point this out because some of you know exactly how this plays out. Some of you bear deep scars because of choices that someone else did. 
your parents, a teacher, your uncle. Some of you have consequences because of the decision and the rebellion and the foolishness of someone else. That spouse, that ex-spouse, that boss, that friend that betrayed you. And some of you are saying, this isn't fair. And it's not. And Joshua did everything right, full of faith. And now he suffers the consequences of the sin of those who rebelled against God. He'll have to wait. He'll have to wait for years. He doesn't know how long. He knows that he'll get to go into the promised land, but he thought it would be this week. It won't be this week or this month or this year or this decade or next decade or next decade. It will be the next decade. And I've wondered, this is the dark side of my mind that I probably shouldn't preach about, but I'm going to let you in on it. Joshua and Caleb know they will get to the promised land, but everyone over 20 has to die first. I wonder, sorry, just I'm apologizing in advance. I wonder if at every funeral, Joshua and Caleb are there, oh, our condolences. <laughs> and another one down, and another one down, another one bites the dust. Oh, hey. Because every time one dies, we're one step closer, baby. Okay, shouldn't have preached on that one, but, but I just wonder. They're going, we're getting there. We're getting there. Keep them, give us another plague. You know. But they have to wait. He could have complained. He could have been saying, God, it's not fair. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not following you. I follow you, and this is what I get. He could have said, Caleb, let's just go. Let's take a shortcut. No, what does he do? He waits humbly. He humbly waits. And during that time, he trusts God. And he remains faithful. And he serves. And he grows. And he's being shaped. And he's being developed. None of us like the waiting. Some of you are in a waiting season right now. You're in the waiting room right now. No one likes that. A promise that you felt like God gave to you, a prayer that you've been praying for decades, some hope, some dream, some plan that you had, and you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Ben Patterson said this, what God does in us while we're waiting is as important as that which we are waiting for. Amen. Let me say this again. What God does in us while we're waiting is as important as what it is that we're waiting for. God is still at work. God hears your prayers. God knows. God's sovereign. He's still on the throne. He's still working it all together. Look at this parallel. Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness because of his sin and rebellion. And yet God redeemed those 40 years so that he would know how to lead people through the same wilderness. Joshua spends 40 years in the wilderness because of someone else's sin and rebellion, but God redeems it and prepares him to lead them into the promised land. God is sovereign. Your sin and someone else's sin cannot stop God's plan. That's why it says in Romans that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That God is still at work. So in your season of waiting, in your season of dealing with the consequences of other people's choices, you hold on to what God is doing. Okay, I've got to hurry because I'm way late and people are leaving. All right, so let's fast forward. Let's fast forward 38 years. 38 years, okay. Now, 38 years, they're getting ready. All these people that are 20 and, and older have all died off. And now they're getting ready to go into the promised land. 
Moses, Joshua, and Caleb are the three oldest guys in the whole nation. Moses is 120, Caleb is 85, Joshua's probably in his 60s, maybe early 70s, somewhere around there. And this is the word that God gives to Moses. Deuteronomy 3, verse 28. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. And we'll get into all that next week. I'll stop there. But this one, I want you to understand this. Long, long, long before Joshua's ever the leader, long before he ever crossed the Jordan River, long before he fit the Battle of Jericho, long before he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, long before all of that, he continued to trust. He continued to be faithful. He continued to serve. He continued to grow. He continued to allow God to work out his plan in his life. And as he's getting ready to go in, all the people who were 20 and older at the time of that rebellion, they've died. None of them get to go into the promised land. Numbers 32, verse 12. Not one, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun. And look at this phrase. For they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. When the culture around them was rebelling from God's way, Joshua followed the Lord wholeheartedly. When the circumstances of someone else's sin and decision and rebellion impacted him, Joshua followed the Lord wholeheartedly. While he was waiting for this dream that had been promised to him, this vision that had been given to him, 38 years of mundane, day after day, month after month, year, Joshua followed wholeheartedly. And so back to my prayer for us in this, this series. Because while the details are different, the circumstances are the same. Some of you, some of you have been impacted by other people's choices. Some of you are in a waiting room that just seems to go on and on. We're all in a culture that lives in rebellion against God and his truth. And maybe in our lives, in these seasons, in these circumstances, in this culture, we ought to ask this question. What would Joshua do? What would Joshua do? Well, this I know. He would follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And I pray for us that we would be people like Joshua people of courage and conviction and deep, deep character, people whose lives are based on values, who live virtuous lives, people of integrity, people of, of ethics and morals. And over it all and undergirding it all, people who follow the Lord wholeheartedly.